The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. How many of you here have read the book, Lord of the Flies? Okay, quite a few. Did I hear blah over here? (laughs) Blah? How many of you started reading it and then gave up and just watched the movie? Just me? Okay, good. Good to know. You did too. All right. Lord of the Flies was written in 1954. And for those of you who don't know, it's about a group of young boys who are stuck on an uninhabited island who try to govern themselves. And how does it go? doesn't go very well. It has really disastrous results. What you may not know is that Lord of the Flies was inspired by a very popular book that came almost 100 years earlier called The Coral Island. And The Coral Island is about three boys that are stuck on a South Pacific island. And they are the only survivors of a shipwreck. And it is a glorious story of these three boys who have these great Christian virtues that are triumphant heroes. Of course, there is a great difference between these two books. There's a similarity in that there's this group of boys stuck on an island who govern themselves. But in the Coral Island, the boys fought against outside evil and won. And in Lord of the Flies, the boys fought against evil within, and they lost horribly. The boys left to themselves fight for order, fight for control, fight for power, and it descends into utter anarchy. And as a result, one of the boys named Piggy is killed. If you remember, his glasses have been crushed. And while another boy is fleeing for his life, the island is set on fire. A naval fleet sees this, comes and rescues the boys, not only from the island, but rescues them from themselves. Today, we're starting a new series in 1 Samuel. And just to give you a picture of the setting that this is being written into, God has delivered Israel out of Egypt through the wilderness and into the promised land of Canaan. God sets up judges to rule over Israel. And although Israel was to be like the book Coral Island in fighting against evil and wickedness and harmony within, it was so much more like Lord of the Flies as it descended into anarchy and into destruction. Israel falls into this vicious cycle, which is laid out for us in the book of Judges. And there's actually a chart up here that shows the cycle in the book of Judges of what Israel does while they're in the promised land. Israel serves the Lord. Israel forgets God. Israel does evil. Israel serves other gods. Israel is enslaved. Israel cries out to the Lord. God raises up a judge. Israel is delivered. Israel serves the Lord. And then it continues again. Israel forgets God. Israel does evil. So and so, on and on and on. And this happens over the course of 13 judges. Israel continues in this cycle. And as we look at this cycle, we can see some very important things. The first is that humanity is prone to forget God. But in this, I think we also see a picture of ourselves. Don't we? You know, we serve the Lord we forget God, we do evil, we worship other idols, we're enslaved by sin, we cry out to the Lord, he delivers us, we serve the Lord, and then what happens? We forget the Lord, 
We chase after idols. We're enslaved to those idols. We repent. And there's this vicious cycle that we're on. Israel in a mega scheme was stuck on this cycle. The book of Judges ends with these terrifying words that sound so similar to Lord of the Flies. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone in Israel was grasping for control and power and their own selfish interests. And so it was a very dark time in Israel. And what we see is that in this dark time, God brings a prophet to Israel named Samuel to break the vicious cycle. And God brings the prophet Samuel through the humble origins of a woman named Hannah. And that's whose story we're going to start with today. So if you would, please open up to 1 Samuel chapter 1. It's page 225 in the Red Bible. It's page 297 in the Children's Bible. Now, if you're here for the last series, you know typically we read all the way through a passage and then work back through it. But today is a large passage, and so we will just read as we go. And so let's start by opening with prayer. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that you do not leave us in our vicious cycles of sin, but that, God, you have interrupted that pattern with prophets, with teachers, with leaders, with grace, with a Savior. And so, God, pray as we look at this story of Hannah, that in it we would see our own story. And as we look at Hannah's hope, may we have that same hope for ourselves. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Today, as we look back at this story of Hannah, it is written about 1100 BC. That's when Hannah was living. And as we look at this story of Hannah, we will see that it is encased in a greater story, a story of God's redemption for Israel. And so let's look at Hannah's story together. The first thing we want to look at is Hannah's anguish. Look in verse 1 with me. We'll read through verse 8. There was a certain man from Ramathim, a Zuphite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Penina and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband, Elkanah, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? In this opening passage, we have three main characters. 
And I want to just spend a little time unpacking who these characters are. The first person we meet is Elkanah. Elkanah worshipped the Lord Almighty. Year after year, he faithfully went up and worshipped and sacrificed to the Lord at the temple. And he would provide the sacrifice not only for himself, but also for his entire family. But what else we find out about Elkanah is that he's also a polygamist, meaning he has two wives. It was culturally accepted at that time. It was a culturally accepted sin. It wasn't accepted by God, but it was accepted by the culture at that time. You know, people will look at the Old Testament and they'll often say polygamy is never explicitly forbidden in the Old Testament. And they're right. There is no explicit prohibition against polygamy in the Old Testament. But what you see is it is implicitly applied throughout the entire Old Testament and then more explicitly stated in the New Testament. When you look in the Old Testament, you look at creation, God created for Adam a wife, not multiple wives, but a wife, and that the two would become one flesh. Furthermore, as you look through the Old Testament and you see these polygamous relationships, they always end horrifically. There is jealousy and pain and turmoil. And we see this certainly in this relationship as well, even though Elkanah is a worshiper of the Lord Almighty. The final thing we see about Elkanah is that he loved Hannah. He loved Hannah more than Penina. And as we will see later, this fueled the division and the anger, and the turmoil in the family. The second person we see who's the main character that we're looking at today is Hannah. Hannah, we know, was a woman that was married to Elkanah, one of two wives. But the second thing we learn about Hannah is that she has no children. Now, later in chapter one, we'll read about how painful this was for Hannah. Hannah describes herself as being in misery and deeply troubled and in great anguish and grief. Now, the reason Hannah was without child here is made very clear. I don't know if you caught it in verse five and six, but Hannah wasn't barren because she had bad genes. She wasn't barren because she had an accident. She wasn't barren because of bad luck. It tells us very clearly the reason Hannah was barren. And it says, because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb. Now, this is a very important point for us. You know, it is so easy to believe and to testify that God is in control and that God is good when everything goes as planned. It's so easy to testify to the sovereignty of God when there is the birth of a child or when we are promoted in our job or when there's healing of physical disease. It is easy in all those times to say God is good all the time and all the time God is good. But we're reminded that God is not just sovereign in the good times, but that God is sovereign at all times. God is sovereign in the hard times because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb. Now I admit, as we think of God's sovereignty and we look at the past pain and trials in our life, it is often difficult to swallow that God is sovereign even over those things. God is not the author of evil. God grieves over the brokenness of the world but it is hard to swallow and it's even confusing. How could God be sovereign even over this? But I would tell you, 
Not only does scripture tell us that God is sovereign over all things, believing it is far better than the alternative. Because the alternative is to believe that God is not sovereign over our pain, that God is not sovereign over our sorrow, that God is not sovereign over our trials. And if this is true, then it means that God is either unloving, unknowing, or unpowerful. Either way, our sorrow and our pain is only a cosmic accident, and there is no purpose in it at all. But if God is sovereign, even in the midst of pain, then we know there is a greater purpose. And if we know and we believe through the gospel and through God's word and through experience that God is good, we can entrust our horrible situation to a good God, believing that he has an eternal purpose for our pain. You know, I have had the privilege of sitting beside many people in the hospital. And I've had the privilege to sit along others in the funeral home. And the greatest comfort their soul has at that time is that God is not taken by surprise. That their pain, their suffering is a part of his sovereign plan. That it's not without purpose, but it has a great purpose in his kingdom. And though we may not know what that purpose is, we can entrust it to a God who is good. And so when we face good times in our life, God is sovereign and we praise him. But when we face hard times in our life, God is still sovereign and we must still praise him because we know he's working all things, even bad things, together for the good of those who love him. The third person we meet in this story is Penina or Penina. I don't know. I say it both ways. Penina is the other wife of Elkanah. And what we learn about her is that she's very fruitful, that she has lots of children. But we also learn that she hates Hannah. We read this in verse 6 and 7. It says, Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Now, it is so easy to hate Penina, isn't it? Someone who takes the, the deepest pain, the deepest hurt in Hannah's life and exposes it time and time again to, to rub salt in her wounds. The text doesn't say this, but, but I don't think it's hard to assume why Penina is doing this. Again, it's, it's the dysfunction of a polygamous relationship. Her husband loves Hannah more than Penina. And she is jealous for her husband's love and for her husband's affection. And so because of her insecurity, she irritates Hannah. She exploits her pain and drives her to tears and even starvation. And then to make things worse for Hannah, her husband comes along, and this is funny. And he says, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Aren't I better than ten sons? No, <laughs> you're not. Wives, I know your husbands never try to fix the problem, right? They're always empathetic and they listen and I'm sorry that you don't have children. I, I, I empathize with you. He's trying to fix the problem. Sympathy was not his strong suit. But what you see here 
when you take these characters into account, we see how difficult Hannah's situation is. She is barren, and it brings her great anguish, misery, and grief. Her husband, Elkanah, who loves her and loves the Lord, is unsympathetic. And Hannah's rival, Penina, is jealous, bitter, angry, and she's taken it out on Hannah. You know, maybe you're here today and you can resonate with Hannah. Maybe there is great tragedy in your life, great pain in your life, great grief in your life. No one seems to understand your pain. And the words that they say, even if they are well-intentioned, seems to make matters worse. And so the question is, what do we do with this pain? You know, I think Penina was also in very similar pain. And what did she do with it? She was bitter. She was angry. She ran from the Lord. But what we see in Hannah is that in the midst of her pain, she made God her refuge, broken and hurting, but trusting that he is not only sovereign, but that he is good and he is loving. Let's keep reading. Verse 9. Once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorposts of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life. And no razor will ever be used on his head. Let's pause there for a second so I can just briefly explain what she's committing to. In Numbers chapter 6, people for a period of time would dedicate themselves to the Lord. And one of the things that they would do in this time is they wouldn't cut their hair. And it was a sign that they were dedicating themselves to the Lord for a period of time, kind of like John the Baptist. Another thing we see in Leviticus 27 is that Children as young as infants for a period of time were dedicated to the temple and then they would be redeemed and brought back to their household. But they would be sent there to serve the Lord for a time. But you see, Hannah's commitment goes far beyond those traditions. She says very clearly, I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. Her vow is, Lord, if you give me a son, I will give him to you forever for your service and for your glory and for your purposes. Let's keep reading. Verse 12. And as she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, how long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I've been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. You can imagine how painful Eli's words would have been to Hannah. Her own priest, her own shepherd, her own pastor was accusing her of being drunk. You know, Eli's judgment of Hannah 
as being a drunkard, not only he'd further pain upon her, but it also reveals a little bit about the spiritual climate of Israel, doesn't it? I mean, Eli, the priest, was much more accustomed and familiar with drunk people coming into church to pray than he was with people who were coming honestly with fervency to pray before the Lord. He wasn't used to seeing someone sincerely pouring out their soul to the Lord in fervent prayer. Now, after Hannah's response, Eli was evidently convinced of her sobriety and sincerity. And so in verse 17, we read, Eli answered, go in peace and make the, may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, may your servant find favor in your eyes. And then listen closely to this part. Then she went her way and ate something. And her face was no longer downcast. And then early in the next morning, they arose and worshiped before the Lord and then went back to their home at Ramah. What was it that allowed Hannah to eat again? What was it that turned her frown upside down? What was it that changed her disposition? What was it that led Hannah to worship the Lord in the midst of pain and in the midst of suffering? It wasn't that the Lord granted her prayer, not yet at least. She was not pregnant at this time. It wasn't that her husband finally became empathetic and understood what she was going through. It wasn't that Penina stopped harassing her. The reason Hannah's face was no longer downcast was because she shifted her burdens to the Lord. Her face was no longer downcast because she met with the Lord and she took refuge in the Lord. In the midst of her deepest pain, Hannah poured out her heart to the Lord. She cast her anxieties upon the Lord. She entrusted herself and her future to the Lord. She shifted her burdens from her shoulders to God's shoulders. And this eased her pain. Cassie Schoenweiss was telling me last week an amazing story. Her sister, Michelle, who is in her mid-30s, has been confined to a wheelchair. One day, her mother and father were bringing her home from a doctor's appointment back to her house, and he was struggling to bring her up the six concrete stairs into the house, which is the only way for her to come in. And so he was taking the wheelchair and pulling her up the steps. Well, across the street, there was a construction company that was repairing or replacing a roof or something. And one of the men comes over and asks about the situation. And the father explains that, that she's been confined to this wheelchair and that they don't have money uh, to build a ramp because they're quite expensive and they don't necessarily have the, the abilities to do it. And so the man offered uh, to build the ramp if they would pay for the cost of the materials, which would be about $1,800. And although the family didn't have money to do it, they found some other folks who said, we'll chip in, we'll help make this happen. And so they agreed to move forward with building the ramp. And so they built this ramp, you can see it here. They built this nice, beautiful ramp so that she could now go in and out of her house. She wouldn't be confined as a prisoner in her home. Well, a few days later, the family received a letter from the roofing company. Inside of it was a piece of paper, which you can see here. And it said, laborers and materials needed to construct a wheelchair ramp 
at the home at the above address. And it says materials, $0. Labor, $0. Total due, $0. Merry Christmas. On Facebook, her husband responded with great gratitude. And one thing he said, he said, I just want to say with all negativity going on in the world today, that there's still great people with huge hearts out there that took a burden off my family's hands this week. Now, I wasn't there to see them open this letter, but I don't think it's hard to imagine their reaction. My guess is their faces weren't so downcast, that there was great joy and jubilation and celebration. Why was that? Well, he says in his Facebook post, because they took a burden off of his family's hands. See, they weren't so downcast because the construction burden and the financial burden was shouldered by somebody else. What anxieties do you bring today? What burdens are weighing you down? You know, Hannah's pain and suffering wasn't because she wanted a bad thing. It's because she wanted a good thing. She wanted children. She wanted something that was a good thing from God. It was a godly desire that she had. Maybe you're here and you have a good desire, a godly desire, and you've been praying to the Lord to grant it. And up to this time in his sovereign plan, he has not given it to you. Maybe you have a good desire to have kids but you can't. Maybe you have a good desire to be married, but you aren't. Maybe you have a good desire for your family to be in better harmony with one another. Maybe you want a job that fits better, or maybe you want a loved one to come to faith in Christ. Maybe you want emotional healing, physical healing, spiritual healing. All of these are good desires. All of these are godly desires. And yet God in his perfect timing has either said no or not yet. What we learn from this passage is that we are to seek refuge in the Lord, that he will shoulder our burdens, that we can cast all of our burdens and all of our anxieties upon him, and it will change our demeanor. We will not be so downcast. This is what Peter told us, if you remember just last month. In 1 Peter 5, we read, humble yourselves, Therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time, cast all your anxieties, the big ones, the little ones, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. This is what Hannah was doing. Paul also says this in Philippians 4. He says, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. This is exactly what Hannah was doing. By prayer and petition, she was presenting her request before God. And then it goes on to say, And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Hannah might be the best example of Philippians 4, 6 through 7. She came to the Lord. She cast all of her anxieties upon him. And her face was no longer downcast. Because the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, was guarding her heart and her mind. You know, I've heard people say, people that lead worship, leave all your burdens at the door, come in and worship the Lord. 
Have you ever heard that? Maybe I've said it. I don't know. It's not what God calls us to do. God says, bring your burdens. Bring your pains. Bring your sorrow. Bring your heartache. Bring your prayers. Come into the house of worship and lay them upon me. Jesus himself says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and you will find rest for your souls. In the midst of sorrow, in the midst of anxiety, in the midst of suffering, we can seek refuge in the Lord and let him bear our burdens that we might have rest for our soul. And so we've seen Hannah's anguish. We've seen Hannah's refuge. Finally, we see Hannah's faithfulness. Verse 19, partway through. Elkanah made love to his wife, Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. Now the name Samuel was given to memorialize what the Lord had done here. And it is derived from a phrase meaning who, who was at, he who was asked for or asked from God. And so it's representing that Samuel was asked for and the Lord gave him. Verse 21, when her husband Elkanah went up with all his family to offer the annual sacrifice to the Lord and to fulfill his vow, Hannah did not go. She said to her husband, after the boy is weaned, means when he stops nursing, I will take him and present him before the Lord and he will live there always. Again, you see Hannah's commitment to her vow. We also see Elkanah's commitment to that vow as well. Verse 23, do what seems best to you, her husband Elkanah told her. Stay here until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord make good his word. So the woman stayed at home and nursed her son until she had weaned him. After he was weaned, she took the boy with her, young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. When the bull had been sacrificed, they brought the boy to Eli. And she said to him, Pardon me, my Lord, as surely as you live, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child and the Lord had granted me what I asked of him. And then I want to hone in this final verse. So now I give him to the Lord for his whole life. He will be given over to the Lord and he worshiped the Lord there. You know, I don't think anyone would have blamed Hannah if she didn't fulfill her vow. I mean, it sounds like people didn't even know what her vow was. It was just between her and the Lord. I mean, she lets her husband know after the, the baby's born. She lets Eli know when they go to the temple. And so she could have easily backed out of it. Not, not only that, but she made this vow in a desperate situation. And, and not only that, but she was entrusting her son not only to the Lord, but also to Eli to raise him. And if you know anything about Eli, he's not a very good dad. And yet she does not waver in her vow to give her child to the Lord, her only child to the Lord. 
In fact, she does so joyfully. Next week, we'll read about the song that she sings, praising God, giving her child over to the Lord. And she does this joyfully because she understands one thing that we so often forget, and that is that our children do not belong to us. Our children belong to the Lord, and that we are called to give our children back to the Lord. They are a miraculous blessing from God. But not only that, this is the most important part that I want you to hear. Our, our children are actually called to be a part of God's grand story of redemption. She understands this. Somehow, someway, Hannah understands that Samuel has more of a purpose than just to be great at sports. That Samuel's purpose is greater than to be great at school. That Samuel's purpose is greater than having a great career and a great family. But that Samuel's chief purpose in life is to be part of God's grand story of redemption. I don't know if you've ever heard of Gabby Douglas. She's a great gymnast. At 14 years of age, her parents sent her from Virginia Beach to Des Moines, Iowa, they gave her over to live with this host family and to this trainer who had trained world-renowned Olympic gymnast. And they handed her over that she might fulfill a great purpose. And she did. She went on to win gold in the all-around. She's the first African-American to do so. And she also, with her team, won gold medal for the uh, team event, the all-around team event. But they had given her over that she might achieve something greater. You know, as we'll see next week, as I mentioned, Hannah rejoices in giving her child over to the Lord and surrendering her child to the Lord. And this is a great picture of what we are to do with our children. We are called to give our children back to the Lord. You know, here at Jacob's Well, we do something which... I know it's not super common, but we do this thing called household baptism. We believe it's what the scriptures call us to do, and so we baptize our children. And one of the vows that parents take in this baptism is this. Do you now unreservedly, 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 without any qualms, without keeping any part to yourself, do you now unreservedly dedicate your child to God? And promise in humble reliance upon divine grace that you will endeavor to set before him or her a godly example, that you will pray with and for him or her, that you will teach him or her the doctrines of our holy religion, and that you will strive by all the means of God's appointment to bring him or her up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And not only that, then we turn to the congregation. And we say, if you're here, if you call Jacob's Well your church home, we have a question for you. Do you, as a congregation, undertake the responsibility of assisting the parents in the Christian nurture of this child? You see, when we are baptizing our children, or maybe you dedicated your children, what we are doing in that moment, we are saying, this child belongs to God unreservedly. I give him over to the Lord. 
The most important thing in his life is not if he can shoot a jump shot, not if he gets straight A's. The most important thing in his life is that he worships and serves the Lord and is a part of his great story of redemption, even while getting A's, even while making jump shots, even while being able to do none of those things. He is serving and worshiping and promoting the Lord. For Samuel, this was to happen at the temple under Eli's pastoral care. But for our children, it is to happen in our household under our pastoral care. It's a new year. It's a great time to analyze life and where your priorities are and things that you're doing and where you're putting your efforts and your commitments. And so let me ask you, how's this going? Has it been crowded out by the busyness of life? We're just too busy. We don't have time. Parents, you are called to be your children's primary pastor, to pray with them and for them, to shepherd them as God has called you to, to read God's word with them and instruct them in it. It doesn't mean you have to be good at it. God's just calling you to be faithful to do it. You know, let me just press a little bit further here. We look at Elkanah for his gross cultural sin of polygamy. And we probably look at it and say, how could he even think of that? But, you know, if if Elkanah was looking into our culture, I think he'd see a cultural sin as well. I, I think he'd say, how come they worship their children? How come they worship sports? Why... Why is the Sabbath day just something that's optional? God has given us the privilege and obligation of coming to him Sunday after Sunday and worshiping the Lord. This is a privilege he's given to us and an obligation to raise our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And yet, it's not as important as a basketball game or a soccer game or a Packer game. Those aren't the primary duties of a parent. The primary duties is to dedicate your child to the Lord, to raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And you know what? You're called to be faithful. God will handle the results, but you're called to be faithful. One more thing I want to point out here. Look how verse 28 ends. It says, and he worshiped the Lord there. Do you know who he is? Any guesses? Samuel, right? Our expectation and our hope should be that our children worship the Lord. There is no guarantees. There is no promises in this, but this is our expectation. This is our hope that our children be be, be worshipers of the Lord God Almighty and that they would be part of his great story of redemption wherever God calls them to be. And so this is what we are called to do as parents. This is a great time to reassess how are we ministering to our kids? How are we raising them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? You see, handing them over to God is not something you do just when they're an infant. It is something you do every day of your life. You're called to minister to your kids, to pastor your kids. Let this be a year that they do not go unchanged because you are faithful to your ministry to love and serve your kids. Let me end with this. You know, as I read this story, there are a couple questions that popped in my head, and, and they might reveal my idolatry a little bit, but one of the things was, 
I was sitting there thinking, God, how could you ask this woman who wanted a child for so long and she had this child, this only child, how could you ask her to, to give him over? I mean, how could you let her fulfill that vow? Why didn't you say, it's okay, you don't have to do this? Why did you, why did you accept that? The other question I had was, God, why is it that you would, that you would, block, that you would not block this? Why, why is it that you, would, that you would take him and that you would put her away so she doesn't really see him much? I guess it's the same question. But God, why, why would you do this? And we know the answer is not because he does not love Hannah or that he does not love Samuel. But he does this because he loves his people. I remember the second question. The second question was, what else... Let me get my thoughts, sorry. Oh, okay. Can I back up? So to end, I had this question. Lord, why would you ask Hannah to give this child that she waited for that was so precious to her? Why didn't you tell her she didn't have to do it? But what we see here, I'm going in the right direction. What we see here is that God does not ask her to do something that he would not do himself. You see, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus came to the Father. And he goes with his disciples and he says, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. And then going a little farther, he knelt down and fell on his face and he prayed, just like Hannah did, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. You know, Jesus was in great agony. The cup Jesus speaks of is the cup of God's wrath, his judgment against sin for all humanity. And you know what? Jesus came to God the Father and he said, if it is your will, will you please take this cup from me? And do you know what God's answer was? No, I won't. This is the only way that I can accomplish my redemption. And just as Hannah did, with infinitely greater pain, God gave his only son over, not just to be raised in the temple, but to be raised on the cross, to die for our sin. And I can imagine the disciples asking this question, how can all of this suffering, how can all of this pain be part of God's sovereign plan? But you know what? Three days later, they knew the answer. Three days later, when Jesus raised from the dead, they said, now I get it. Now I understand why God did not answer Jesus' prayer. Matter of fact, I'm thankful that the Father did not answer Jesus' prayer because if Jesus did not go to the cross, there would be no salvation for mankind. You know, as we look at our pain and we look at our suffering, we may say, good for Hannah. Hannah got her prayer, but what about mine? But here's the thing. When we are raised up on the last day, we will know why God said no. And we will thank him and we will praise him for saying no to our prayer requests. Your prayer request may be a good thing. It may be a great thing. But you see, God has this great scope of redemption in mind. And he is using us as unworthy as we are to fulfill his great plan of redemption. You know, when Jesus was in the garden, when he asked the father to remove the cup, he ended it by saying, not as I will, but as you will. Because he knew 
that God's plan was a greater plan and that the Father's plan was a good plan and that he had all things in mind for his glory and for our good. And so when you come to God with your suffering, with your pain, with your burdens, and he says to you, no, we can have this great confidence that if we knew what God knew, we would praise him for saying no. And that when we are raised from the dead, we will understand all his ways. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for Hannah's story. We can resonate, God. There is, there's much pain and there's much suffering in our life. Lord, may we be faithful to bring it to you, that you may shoulder that burden, God, that we may not be so downcast because we have entrusted it to you, Lord. Let us be faithful to pray for those things, to pray against the effects of the fall, the effects of sin. May we pray for that faithfully, God, but may in the end we trust that your will will be done, that we need not fret what's going to happen tomorrow, that you have it planned out and it is the best that is possible. Help us to rest in your, suffer, in your sovereignty, even in the midst of suffering. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.